This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Rental Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Rental Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains and sprockets. Uh, we're also coming to you thanks to Fly Racing, uh, who've got a pretty impressive catalogue when it comes to street gear actually. Helmets, luggage, apparel, protection, gloves, footwear, the works. Uh, have a good look through flyracing.com for their entire catalogue there. They're not just famous for off-road gear and the uh, impressive Formula helmet. Uh, my name's Adam Wheeler. I'm joined by David Emmett. Dave, uh, good evening. It's um, a rare occurrence for the Paddock Pass podcast. We're recording on Monday after the race, so we're uh, I'm not sure if we're fresh or perhaps somewhat uh, lethargic after you know another MotoGP weekend. I think we're always jaded, Adam, always jaded. It's a journalist <laughs> job to be jaded, and that is the, uh, the, the the cynical voice of Mr. Neil Morrison, who's um, you know actually just come onto the mic after being on the mic all weekend in Portugal. Neil, welcome back home uh, to Barcelona. Uh, have you thawed out after the chilly but sunny wind in uh, Portimao? I was expecting to come back to tropical temperatures in in Barcelona, Ad, but slightly dismayed that the uh, the winter is here as well. Um, yeah, currently uh, looking and browsing through some potential pajama options long johns for the winter uh such as the uh, the coldness in my flat at the moment um but yeah it was a, a nice uh nice trip portugal obviously is a lovely uh great part of the world down in the Algarve. um so yes but the end is in sight and i think uh well the racing on sunday didn't uh certainly the MotoGP race didn't quite uh, have that spark um but uh yeah pretty good still all the same well, I'm sure all the uh, all the you know the female fans of the Morrison baritone would be getting excited at the thought of you in pajamas and long johns. Uh, thankfully, we, you know the Paddock Pass podcast is not on video channels yet, but look out for it in 2022, where our um, you know our spectacular fashion sense should be in front of a camera somewhere. And speaking of fashion sense, um, I think our sponsors or partners are going to be expecting a couple of emails soon because Dave, you've got a new motorbike on the way, so you're going to be sort of rifling the fly racing catalogue. And Neil, I think you're also, um, you know, eyeing, you know, the proximity of Christmas, uh, you know. I mean, we could do this at uh, Kill Two Birds With One Stone if um, Neil sends a uh, an email to Fly Racing to ask for a Christmas present for me. <laughs> I, I have brothers and a father to, to buy presents for, Dave. So uh, I'm sorry, mate, you're a little low down the priority list. I'm d- d- very, very disappointed about that. Um, I have a question, actually, just reverting back to, you know, GP rather than, um, you know, Christmas lists. If, you know, we just went to the roller coaster and Assen is the cathedral and Silverstone is a frigging airfield, then what does that make the Ricardo Tormo circuit in Valencia this the coming end. weekend? <laughs> it makes it the end. El fin. That, that, the, that's right. So, well, yeah, play the door song. I mean, it is literally, you know, this is the end. Does that make you Colonel Kurtz? <laughs> <laughs> there are similarities. <laughs> yes, there have been people who have remarked upon that. So, uh, yes, the horror, the horror. <laughs> well, uh, let's, let's let's skip through the euphemisms for MotoGP race circuits because it's utterly lame. I think I've stated my opinion on it more than once. Let's go into our moments of the weekend. Um, for me, I'm going for a really easy one. Um, like Neil pointed out, the MotoGP race won't be filling any major chunks of the highlight reels from 2021. So you can't go for much wrong than the MotoGP, uh, sorry, the Moto3 race incident on the last lap where um, dive bond Darren Binder uh, made himself a little bit like the fresh enemy of the MotoGP paddock with the unfortunate takeout of the world championship hopeful Dennis Foggia uh, coming into turn three, I believe it was. Uh, I mean, pfft. Uh, I mean, I mentioned it as well on the Paddock Pass podcast note show, guys. I think um, Darren's attempt, although very earnest and, of course, uh, you know, honest as well, to go into the leopard racing pit box and try and apologize immediately after the race perhaps wasn't the most optimum moment to uh, offer his uh, sincere uh, condolences, perhaps, for the, you know, the killing of uh, Dennis Foggia's championship hopes. But uh, it was, you know, a sensational end to a, an electrifying race, it has to be said. Uh, Dave, what was your view on the matter? I mean, um, I actually quite liked Franco Morbidelli's take on it, where he said, um, uh, last lap, normal Moto3 craziness. 
which is not normal, but it's normal for Moto3. Um, that's about it. I mean, like, the, what happened was, I've just been writing about this. I mean, it, it, so I've watched it lots of times, and it's it's clear that um, uh, Acosta gets up the inside of Foggia, and, and that puts Foggia a little bit offline. So he's actually going really slow through that corner, through turn three. And then Binder makes a an excessively ambitious move on Garcia. Um, and if uh, Fodger and Acosta had been further away, there'd have been no problem. I, I, I mean, probably Binder would have run Garcia wide and they both would have lost a lot of ground. Um, but I don't think anything would have happened. But it's just that, uh, you know, Acosta was, or Fodger was not where uh, Binder was expecting when he, when he started his move. And there was very little he could do about it. But then, you know, Binder, it is the last lap, but then it was a, like I say, excessively ambitious. So, um, yeah, uh, I mean, you you also feel that Jack Miller was saying this, like there's a lot of pressure on Darren um, because, you know, he's getting a lot of uh, a stick for the fact that he is going straight to MotoGP. Um, a lot of people feel there are other riders who deserve that seat uh, more. Uh, which is certainly fair enough, um, but you know he's desperate, desperate to try to prove someone. He hasn't been on the podium since I think Doha. I think it was, you know he was on the podium in the first two races, and that's it. So um, yeah, it's just bad, and it, it really didn't deserve. Fod, Dennis Fodger really didn't deserve it. That's sort of the saddest thing, I think. I tell you what, there's a couple of interpretations and also repercussions of what happened of that moment. So we'll tuck into it a little bit later. But Neil, let's just change tack for a moment. What was your moment from um, the Grand Prix of the Algarve? Uh, it was the Moto2 battle uh, that we saw um, in the final race of the day on Sunday uh, because we had a, a really interesting fight between the two title candidates. Um, I was particularly impressed by Remy Gardner's efforts to bounce back from a couple of tough races and uh, a really nasty crash on Friday um, to read in and catch uh, Ralph Fernandez. Um, and obviously tires came into it a little bit. Um, we'll obviously talk about that a bit more in our follow-up show later in the week, um, which covers Moto2 and Moto3. But I thought um, that was a really fascinating um, that was a really fascinating fight. And um, yeah, it does look as though Remy might have just done enough to get the title now. Um, but great to see both of the guys qualifying first and second and, uh, you know, fighting it out for the win pretty much uh, for the majority of the race. Yeah, the seventh one too for the Red Bull KTMA team. Dave, um, what was your moment from the Grand Prix? Well, I mean, uh, mine was Moto3 again, and it was um, uh, Pedro Acosta on Sunday morning. Uh, he'd qualified 14th, and Foggia was in 4th, and Foggia really had a load of momentum. And Acosta went out on Sunday morning and just completely destroyed the field, uh, th nearly eight-tenths of a second faster than uh, whoever was second. And I think he was, you know, eight and a half or, four, or ne nearly nine-tenths faster than uh, Foggia. Um, and then at the end, um, he, uh, after the session was over and they were riding around, then he gave, uh, uh he gave Fodger a cheeky little wave, uh, just to let him know that, um, um, uh, sort of give away his intentions. And at the time I thought, um, if you're really that confident, you don't need that sort of nonsense because you know, you're going to win. Um, but Acosta, uh, was, um, yeah, I think it was just super, the supreme confidence of a cocky little 17-year-old. It was quite camp, the wave. That's what I uh, liked about it. It wasn't like a, a kind of act of macho. Well, it was It was a macho kind of thing, but uh, done in quite a camp way, which uh, I thought was uh, was quite funny. Exactly, which made it even more sort of um, uh, macho and aggressive, really. That was, that was the best thing about it. It was like, hello, uh, coming to get you, coming to take you down. I thought it was, uh, it was very funny. Yeah, it wasn't quite the uh, the intensity of a Lance Armstrong stare out, was it? But, um, you know, of, of course, the double irony being that, you know, Armstrong was probably looking over thinking, my drugs are stronger than yours. But uh, <laughs> Pedro Acosta, guys, became the first rookie world champion for well, since 1990. So, you know, 31 years, that's, that's quite some time. Um, just very quickly, what's our opinions on him? I mean, the cockiness is obviously there. It's uh, flowing from the youth and exuberance and the enthusiasm he has. You know, for his first year in Moto3, of course, let's not forget he was a Red Bull Rookies uh, champion as well in 2020. So he's really on a roll in terms of hitting the marks as a young motorcycle racer in Grand Prix. Um, my, I think he's, like you say, 
immensely, immensely talented. I mean, he has some particular kind of handling on the motorcycle, some techniques and some bravado that's going to carry him quite a long way, I think. I mean, the sort of technique and, and uh, um, skills we're seeing from Ralph Fernandez in Moto 2. I mean, I think Acosta's very much on the same lines. I do wonder if he might get a little bit, he might overstep the mark possibly, because as we've seen with riders like say tony arbolino in motor two um you know that class is another step that is another gulf to be uh, traversed so yeah, i think he while he's set milestones um you know and he's achieved something phenomenal in his career already you know before he can sort of i think legally hire a car uh you know he's uh he's kind of on the first rung of the ladder dave i mean do you think riders should fear him in in motor two and motor gp in the coming years or is he is it still too early to call I mean, I, he still has a lot of developing to do, um, but to be able to do what he did is really exceptional. Um, I mean, the things he was doing with the Moto Three bike was just exceptional as well. You know, the, the the fact that he was sliding front and rear and still and and managing it, which is uh, what what was most impressive. Uh, Moto Three to Moto Two is the biggest step in motorcycle racing. Um, because the bikes are so very different and it, it takes a completely different mindset as well. You have to spend time uh, uh, lapping on your own. You have to spend time focusing on, you know, figuring out the tires, um, uh, figuring out how the tire drops, uh, figuring out how it behaves because everything be, everything is, is so different. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how uh, uh, Acosta approaches that. Also, how he approaches it in terms of because you know he won the he won the Red Bull Rookies. Um, I think he was fighting for the championship in the FIM uh, Junior Championship. Um, uh, he won the Moto Three title at the first attempt. Um, he's going to go up into what is a very very brutal class, um, and we have to wait and see how he handles. Um, uh, sort of setbacks and you know things being more difficult than than he'd have hoped. Yeah, while he's considerably younger, I think we should look at the likes of Albert Arenas and Lorenzo de la Porta and and rem, you know remember that you know uh, being Moto Three World Champion and jumping in Moto Two is not necessarily a passport to greatness. But having said that, the way that Acosta handles the KCM reminds me a lot of the way Juan Mir went about racing in Moto Three. Um, you know, even a little bit of Jorge Martin as well. I mean, he was able really to, to bend the motorcycle to his will. I mean, Neil, you've been watching him more than any of us over the last year. Uh, is he the real deal, um, you know, or are we in danger of hyping up just, you know, another hot Spanish talent who's had a, a fantastically good season? I think we're maybe in danger of overhyping Pedro a little bit um, in that we might haven't watched this year, expect him to jump up to Moto2 and be successful straight away, which I still think is is a bit unrealistic. Um, but if you're asking me, do I think he's going to be in MotoGP by the time he's, what, like 20? I'd say probably, yeah. Um, you mentioned Delaporta and Arenas there. I mean, I think he's done a lot more than either of those did in Moto3 combined, um, even though both of them were, were previous world champions. Um, I was quite surprised, actually, that uh, a few colleagues were saying that they were firmly in Team Foggia um, come Saturday, uh, Sunday morning. Um, a few people were saying they were a little fed up of how cocky he was coming across and uh, some of his antics. But, um, I mean, if you're 17 years old and the likes of Kevin Schwantz and Casey Stoner are coming down to your garage to tell you that they're big admirers of your work, I believe that uh, the... Uh, the, the kind of humble, modest part of you um, is really not going to be uh, having much of a say in your brain whenever you're speaking or, or conducting yourself on the track. So I think it's entirely extend, uh, understandable that he has a, a, an air of cockiness and he backs it up. You know, he would have looked like a total idiot with that uh, wave to Foggy on Sunday morning had he not gone out and did what he did in the race. But he was fantastic in the race. So, you know, if you, if you flaunt it, make sure you've got something to back it up. And he, he certainly does. Yeah, it's hard to be humble when you're one of the very best motorcycle racers in the world. At 17. At 17, yeah, God, yeah, God. I can remember what I was like at 17. And if I'd been one of the best uh, motorcycle racers in the world at 17, I would have been absolutely unbearable. As opposed to? As opposed to now, yeah, exactly, where I'm an affable and uh, genial uh, sort of uh, sort of chap. A source of happiness and uh, uh, optimism. <laughs> 
dear listeners, come to the Paddock Pass podcast for the uh, the high end levels of delusion. Um, I mean, when it comes to Acosta, I mean, it's not just the you know the gestures in in the face of victory, of which he's had a few. I think five Grand Prix wins in total, or maybe even six this season. But you know, it's also his reaction to emerging largely unscathed from huge smashes like we saw in Cotter. I mean, that was. Uh, you know, that that really summed up for me his age, um, you know, and his kind of approach to the whole serious business that, you know, let's face it, is extremely powerless. I mean, it's a sport that can kill you, um, you know, unfortunately, as we've seen this year. And uh, I think Pedro's kind of way to deal with that, um, some of his reactions we saw clearly on camera was again, you know, representative of a 17-year-old who really is just like milking, you know, the sport, the series and his job for everything that's worth. I think it's kind of admirable, really. But just touching, you know, we won't talk too much about Moto3 because as Neil said, we've got a follow-up show coming later this week. But let's just talk a little bit about the situation around Dennis Foggia. Um, you know, like you said, Neil, a lot of people were really jumping on the on the Honda Riders train. Um, you know, do we honestly think, the three of us, that, you know, he would have denied Acosta in that race from the way from my comfy chair you know in Barcelona it looked very much to me like Acosta was just lining up that last lap um you know he was he was going to have that victory by hook or by crook maybe um he, he might have won the race but I think the the whole Leopard reaction has been a little unsavory just because uh, I mean Acosta was showing in that race that uh he was not fraught with nerves by any stretch. Um, and you could imagine him going to Valencia with a similar uh, outlook because that's a track that he knows well. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I think, you know, Foggia maybe had a little chance of, of getting him towards the end of the lap. He was pretty strong up in towards, I think, uh, turn seven and up in towards turn 10. The Honda worked particularly well in those uh, in those corners, those long uh, corners where you're breaking an angle. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I don't think, uh, even if he won the race, we would still be talking about Pedro as champion this time next week. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, um, Acosta's race up to that point, um, earned him the championship because yeah, I, I suspect that Foggia would have crossed the line first, um, or it would have been very, very close. And if Foggia crosses the line first, well, if Acosta crosses the line ahead of uh, Foggia, then the championship is over anyway. Um, if uh, Foggia crosses the line just behind Acosta, uh, then he's 16 points. He's at Valencia with uh, 16 points behind. And 16 points is a lot to make up on uh, on another rider in, in just one race. And he really need Acosta to fall to pieces um, at Valencia. And Acosta has just shown no... I mean, he's had sort of a few not fantastic races but he's never gone to pieces um that's been the most impressive thing about it really just the fact that he's he sort of held it together even though uh i think when the last in six races he lost 76 points or 73 points i forget but a lot of points to uh, uh to Foggia, and yet he was still there week in week out We'll um, talk a little bit more about Moto3 in the follow-up show later this week. Uh, of course, we'll talk about Darren Binder, who you know attracted a fair deal of uh, discussion and controversy, perhaps, uh, on his move straight out of Moto3 to MotoGP. And of course, you know that crash that ultimately helped decide the 2001 Moto3 World Championship, not really um, helping squirrel his name away from the headlines. But uh, we'll, we'll take a quick pause here on the current show. And when we come back, we'll just tuck into the MotoGP race and some of the topics we saw from Sunday's action. Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the show. First talking point of the uh, latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast, Dave, um, we saw Fabio Quartararo crash out his first DNF of the season. You and I spoke on the note show on Sunday about whether Fabio just actually wanted to get back to partying uh, or perhaps he was just trying to push the Yamaha a little bit more in some of the corners, maybe trying to explore some more of the boundaries and limits of the M1, perhaps even experiment with some settings for next season ahead of the 
test, of course, in Jerez a few days after the final race in Valencia next week. Um, but you saw Fabio's form, perhaps indicative of a larger problem for Yamaha that we've known about for some time, but has actually been quite expertly hidden by the new world champion, and that was the lack of top speed. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, what I think is, I mean, the 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 twenty twenty one. Yamaha M um, M1 is a much much better bike than the 2019 bike, and a much better bike than, than the 2020 bike. Obviously, they changed the engine uh, significantly in uh, in 2020, um, and they took a year to get that right because it was quite obvious that the bike was better in some places, but um, it was really finicky and it needed to be perfectly set up. This bike, um, in fact, I was looking at the Yamaha's engine usage and you could see that um, Quartararo was basically going out each session just on one bike. And that means that you're not doing massive setup changes. You've got everything pretty much nailed down. You don't want to, you don't want anything to break. So you are, you've got your most reliable bike with, or, you know, the most reliable parts on it. Um, you've got uh, the, the, the bike set up pretty much as you please. It works almost everywhere it has this one weakness this lack of speed and uh, Quattararo was saying you know he was just stuck behind the Ducatis and at certain types of tracks tracks like Portimao um, there's just nothing he can do he's stuck there he can't overtake he can't get past them um, he can't get close enough to actually outbreak them even though he is so incredibly strong uh, on the brakes which you saw for example at um, uh, in Austria the Red Bull Ring which is a really you know fast hard braking track uh, and yet, um, uh, Quattararo was easily capable of outbreaking them there. Um, but he basically said he lost it on Saturday. You know, they 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 played around with the with the change on Saturday, and it really didn't work out. And so he qualified very badly. Uh, I think seventh, um, and that was too far behind. He got swamped by a whole bunch of Ducatis. Um, uh, at the start, uh, I mean, there was lots of memes going around on. Uh, what was it on Saturday night about uh, Juan Mir uh, being surrounded by uh, Ducatis? Um, but uh, it, the, the problem was not so much Juan Mir being um, surrounded by Ducatis because Juan Mir managed to beat all of them except for Pekka Banyaya. Um, the problem was uh, Fabio Quattararo. He just got stuck behind uh, Jorge Martin and Joan Zarco and um, in his attempt to get past them, pushed a little bit too far. Uh, I think it was turn five where 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 he crashed it, a place where people are always going to crash uh, you know downhill off camber um, fantastic corner um, uh, washed the front and down he went. I think although this was uh, the first crash of Quadraro and the first DNF of Quadraro's season, I think it gives you a bit more perspective of just the fantastic job that he's done this year. Not only in the fact that his qualifying has been almost exemplary. I mean, I think Sunday was, if I'm not mistaken, only the second time he was off the front row uh, all year, which is uh, pretty impressive in 17 races. Um, but it's not as if he's been doing Jorge Lorenzo-esque feats in every single race and just getting to the front immediately and, and, and pulling clear. He has had to... Um, he has had to fight in a lot of occasions. We've obviously talked about this quite a lot after Fabio won the championship um, at Misano. Um, but uh, I think in each of his, his five wins so far this year, he's had to maybe drop back a little bit and then push forward and fight. And this was an occasion where he just uh, he just wasn't able to get by uh, one particular Ducati. Um, and uh, yeah, he said his riding got a little bit sloppy. He started making some mistakes, obviously then crashed out. Um, we saw him have a massive moment up at turn 13 as well where he lost the front and then had to pick up Johan Zarco came by and it just became quite clear quite early that this wasn't going to be his day um, but it does show you just how well he has been able to manage that situation because when you're not starting from the front row uh, as we've seen from the other Yamaha guys all the way through this year um, it really is quite a difficult situation to be in and he has managed not to be in that situation really at all or very regularly. The Yamaha has been stereotyped as the user-friendly motorcycle in MotoGP but I mean is there a danger that the manufacturer could be slipping into the same sort of mold as Honda where they only have one or maybe two riders that can really make the motorcycle and the Michelin allocation work? Uh, as we see on the other side of the pit lane, you have Ducati winning the Constructors' Championship, which Dave and I talked about as well on Sunday. And the Constructors' crown only really seems to matter to the engineers that have built the bloody things. Um, but, you know, Ducati, perhaps justifiably so, believe they have the best motorcycle in MotoGP. 
But, you know, I, I want to know whether, you know, we've seen an exceptional rider do something brilliant with a very average motorcycle or, you know, Yamaha are on the threshold of making one final tweak to their setup to, you know, be perhaps the defining motorbike again in, in the class. Well, Yamaha haven't been able to really touch the engine just because of the, the regulations uh, that were brought yeah, in. Yeah, the freeze. Yeah, yeah. the engine freeze uh, last year. So they've been able to pretty much improve all of the parts of the bike that they could improve. Um, they couldn't really touch the engine. and Especially uh, the valves. <laughs> exactly. Especially those. Um, I wouldn't say it's an average motorcycle by any stretch. Um, it's just not the best motorcycle on the grid. It's maybe the second one or the third one. Um, but, uh, you know, and they're fortunate that, that Quartararo can be quick on his base setting pretty much everywhere we go. Um, but yeah, the Ducati, you just have to look at the, the performances of, of not just Banyaya, who's sensational at the moment, but the likes of Miller, Martin, Zarco, they're all there. They're all up towards the, the, the top five, top six in the race. Um, so it does show you that um, I think all the factories have a real job in their hands to beat Ducati next year because Bagnai is looking great and he has such strength and depth in backup. Um, I mean, there are feasibly four guys, if you include Bastianini next year, who can be acting as wingman to him. Whereas, uh, you know, Fabio will have more Bedelli perhaps. Mir maybe has reins, but that's no that's no given. Mark, will he maybe have Paul? It's not uh, exactly a certainty. So, um, yeah, I think uh, Ducati are, are are in a pretty good uh, pretty good place. But Yamaha know that uh, this is a this is one of their main weaknesses. They knew that last year. They knew this, I think, from the first winter test this year when they were in Qatar, that this was a weakness of their bike. So um, it's uh, it's something I think that they'll have paid particular attention to when addressing the, the 22 M1 were to improve. Um, and uh, yeah, you have to imagine there'll be a, a Yamaha with a higher top speed next year. I think um, the circuit as well, you know, the Algarve International Circuit, I mean, it's, as we saw, it, it's a place, we've had three Grand Prix there now and it hasn't been fantastic for racing. It does seem to be amazing for riding. And various manufacturers either had a very good day, like we saw Suzuki or a distinctly average one. I mean, Aprilia didn't shine, KTM had their struggles. Um, it seems to be a venue that really, even though in qualifying, the times are incredibly close as they usually are uh, lately in MotoGP, um, you know, there seems to be a whole kind of range of problems, whereas, you know, Miguel Oliveira and Brad Binder really struggle to get traction with the KTM. Ikola Kwana is able to make the difference and, and fight for one of his best results in the class. Um, Neil, I mean, you, you gave quite a nice dissection really there of the Yamaha, um, you know, and of course, Ducati, our Constructors World Champion. Dave, you, you, you said that, you know, top speed obviously is a, a problem, um, for the blue bikes, but, you know, we haven't really seen any other riders. I mean, Maverick Mignales had, uh, you know, as famously burnt very hot and very cold and, and jumped off the Yamaha. So, uh, what was your take on the general scope for them? Yeah. I mean, I think I've said it before, but it, it I don't think there's much wrong with the bike as such. I think the bike is actually fine. Um, it's just that the rest of the riders, uh, only Quattararo has been able to put a season together. The rest of them have been sort of so up and down. Like you say, Maverick Vinales is, uh, you know, he's won a race, he's had podiums, he's qualified on pole, he's been all over the shop. Um, uh, and he's also finished dead last. And then he tried to blow the bike up and uh, and then left. Uh, so then you've had Franco Morbidelli who, uh, has an injured, uh, or, you know, injured his knee. Um, you have had, um, uh, uh, Valentino Rossi who has just not been, he's just been a shade of his, of his former self really all of this year. Uh, so yeah, th there hasn't really been a, um, it's hard to say because there hasn't really been a consistent rider apart from Fabio Quartararo on the bike, so you couldn't really tell who's been who's been doing what. Um, I, I think the bike is good. I think the bike is much better. It is down on top speed, uh, but the trouble is, if, once you start changing top speed, because you know motorcycle design is a is a compromise, and if you add more speed, then it makes it more difficult. Yeah, I think um, you could uh, maybe if we had uh, you know Frankie Morbidelli fully fit on the 2021 Yamaha from the start of the season, we could have seen him in the title fight or somewhere thereabouts. I think judging by how he, he ended the preseason, you would have, you would have said that was definitely possible. But Vinales, you know, we, we, we saw his flaws right in the open from, you know, the third or fourth race. 
Um, and, uh, and you know, as Dave said, Rossi is his final year of his career. So it's not really a fair judgment. So, yeah, I'm inclined to, to agree with that, that it's not necessarily a one-rider bike like the like the Honda has been for the last couple of years. Um, it's more just a case of varying circumstance of, uh, of the different Yamaha men. Neil, I mean, the Grand Prix winner, of course, was Peko Bagnaia. And, you know, Fabio Quattararo is the world champion. Um, you know, he's stamped his mark all over 2021. But, you know, arguably the Italian has ridden, risen to the point where we should really consider him a championship contender for next year, shouldn't we? Um, he's fully synced up with, with the Ducati. And you, you kind of feel if it wasn't for moments arguably out of his control, like in Mugello, then, you know, things could have been a bit tighter for the, for the championship race. But... Well, what, what's your take on, on Peko? Um, is, I mean, I asked you earlier if, if Acosta was the real deal. Um, Bagnaia, for me, his Moto2 World Championship winning season was fantastic. Um, and he's really, after some shaky moments, matured into the rider. I think the VR46 Academy and a lot of Italian fans believe he would be in the Premier class. Yeah, I'm still a little bit annoyed with Peko because it was largely his fault uh, that the race was just such a non-event on Sunday. I actually was expecting this to be something pretty exciting, pretty entertaining. All through free practice, we were seeing Fabio and Peco barely separate, uh, separated in the timesheets. Uh, Joanne Mir was starting in the front row, and in the early laps, it seemed that Joanne might give Peco something to, to do, but Peco just made things really, really quite dull. Uh, I mean, well, it that's was... why they brought out the red flag, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, they did us all a favour. That's right. The, the, that was to celebrate Ducati's um, uh, constructors' championship. They couldn't have choreographed it any better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. He's been so good. He has been absolutely so good. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I jest. Um, it, it was sensational. It was his most dominant performance in MotoGP to date by by some distance. Obviously, his previous triumphs. Uh, he fought with Marquez, then fought off Quartararo, um, previously in Aragon and Misano, whereas this was just total domination. Um, ridiculously consistent right the way through. I think there was a seven-tenth variation in his lap times right the way through the race from lap what, lap two to 23, which is pretty staggering. Um, and uh, yeah, five pole positions now on the points. Uh, three, he's won three of the last five. Um, this is definitely what we were anticipating when he won at Aragon, thinking like, okay, he's done the, the first one, now the rest will flow, and they really are flowing. Um, and he's just uh, he's just so smooth and uh, able to, to basically um, lead at the front and, and, and basically do kind of Lorenzo-esque performances. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really impressive. Um, and I think, you know, the rest should be pretty worried about next year because... Uh, He's obviously going to come into uh, 2022 with a, a great deal of momentum. And, um, you know, on the basis of the last uh, couple of months, he's going to take some beating. I don't want to undervalue his com contribution and what he's, you know, added or developed, I should say, to the Ducati and Desmo Sedici over the years. But do you think Paco's evolved into the kind of rider that the factory and the race team hoped that Andrea De Vizioso would have been? Uh, you know, an Italian rider on an Italian bike, Italian team. Um, he's really become like the figurehead now. I mean, you'd almost say Jack Miller, who, you know, had a good podium finish at the weekend, has, has become, you know, in the shade a little. He's definitely become like the number two, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, Jack Miller is clearly the number two rider now. Um, I, I think he almost accepts that himself. Uh, Pekka Bagnaia is uh, very much in charge at Ducati. Um, Pekka is... Uh, it's really important to Ducati to have a fast Italian rider. That was why they signed uh, Valentino Rossi all those years ago. Um, Andrea Dovaccioso has ended up being the lead development rider, really, of the uh, of the whole thing. He actually developed that bike into to the point where it is now. Um, it, it's just been uh, – and Pecco – I actually remember watching Paco the first time he rode a MotoGP bike, which was a, du a Ducati for the Aspar team, um, I think when um, uh, after his Moto3 season. Uh, and he looked so impressive on it. He got on it and he was immediately looking. I mean, he was taking these really wide Moto3 lines, um, but he was just still really, really impressive on that bike. And, and he looked like a MotoGP rider. So he's obviously just, you know, got there's a lot of natural talent there. And he said this was his best weekend in MotoGP and it, and it showed he was so fast all of the time. 
When we come back, uh, we're going to investigate a little bit more. There was a famous singer who once said, all the movement you need is on your shoulder. And uh, we'll have a little examination of that theme right after these words. Renthal Street Ultralight Rear Sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum, keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Okay, so we're going to dispense with uh, cheesy links here on the Paddock Pass podcast, but we are going to talk about the new shoulder cam that we saw in MotoGP. Um, guys, I think, you know, the influence of our podcast is spreading because earlier on this year, I said that the driver eye in Formula One was uh, something kind of innovative and it showed a, an angle and a perspective on the sport that not many people have seen before. And, and you know, they, they could really appreciate what was going on inside a Formula One car. And when Alex Rins took that little camera or unit, you know, in the left side of his Alpine Stars leathers uh, for a trip around the Algarve, I think he opened uh, the eyes of a lot of people, you know, watching MotoGP. I mean, it was in free practice, so it's, it wasn't sort of prime time viewing, I guess, but it was an experiment. Um, you know, Alex Rins, you could say he's probably one of the most vanilla riders on the grid, but I think his open mindedness to try in this system is, uh, you know, has to be applauded. And of course, you know, Dorna's uh, continuing quest to show a different side of motorcycle racing also deserves praise because you know it wasn't too long ago where i was in the paddock in supercross and i saw the dawner guys um you know meeting with Feld entertainment at the time to talk about how you know racing can be televised how onboard technology can be used um you know they were looking to extend their their technology and learn a lot more about how they can make a better show and um you know i think it has to be something that's uh, i want to see it as quickly as possible in a race basically um and rightfully so i think on social media it was uh, also lauded yeah i mean th this is one field where dawna really are uh, world leaders because um i think that they've had the they've had people from the nfl coming to talk to them they've had people from fifa coming to talk to them about televising these things um so they really really understand uh, how to make something really appetizing this was fantastic uh really enjoyed it um uh, uh, zara daniela who um uh, writes for motor matters uh, she was she summed it up quite nicely. She sort of said, you know, it it, like, it shows that you're not just sitting there. You know, you're just not sitting on the bike. You're not just sitting there and, and going round and round. You're actually so you could see how much movement there was, and you could see how much uh, elevation change there was. You could really see. You got a real sense of of uh, the 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 feeling. Uh, of the bike um, uh, and the physicality of riding a bike as well because um, you don't really get that sense of just how much they're, they're, they're heaving, uh, heaving the bike around. You can see how busy that left hand is as well with the, with, with the buttons there, um, with the right height device having to operate the right height device and all the rest of it. Uh, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was really, really great. And you really got, you know, much more of a sense of it was very dynamic. I also think, you know, it's, uh, sorry, Neil, um, I think it's got some, some way to go. I mean, I don't think you can watch much of it. Uh, it could, you know, you could appreciate a full lap. I think, you know, if, if a rider's going for a time attack or a, obviously a fast one in qualifying, then there's that aspect of it. But I think, you know, it has to be developed and used when it's, when it's used in a pack in a race situation, then that's actually where I think you'll really appreciate how close the guys are together and the proximity, the noise, like you say, Dave, the physicality. I think, um, you know, I did an interview in the last um, issue of On Track Off Road uh, with Alpine Stars. Um, and I asked them a little bit about how, you know, their leather suits, which, you know, I think they have eight riders on the MotoGP grid. Um, you know, what other functions do they have now, apart from being, you know, fantastic second skins and, and offering high levels of protection? Again, as we've seen at Cotter and, and some of the riders sliding off into the gravel traps and are able to jump back up. Um, you know, everything from biometrics to compression, you know, what else can the suit do? Um, and Chris Hillard, actually, the media manager at Alpine Stars, kind of hinted in the story that they were working closely with Dorna. At the time, he couldn't mention the shoulder cam. But, uh, you know, you do wonder what other forms of technology are going to filter into these uh, into these systems that are already already contain the airbags, which are a highly sophisticated kit. What did you think of the whole uh, the perspective, Neil? 
it was superb. I I thought uh, really cool. I think the F1 recently maybe upped the ante ever so slightly, where they had a helmet cam on board with one of their drivers when they were doing um, a lap of Spa, and that was ridiculously cool. Um, and also showed the kind of physicality of of the the, the kind of the, the forces and the wind and, and everything that's going on in a Formula One cockpit. Um, and uh, yeah, as David mentioned, you know, Donna do seem to have the TV um, production thing under under control. They they're always looking ways to kind of in, innovate with their graphics, innovate in ways in which they can try and bring you aspects of uh, what's going on with riders and teams uh, to uh, the television, like we've seen with the, the dashboard communication in recent times. And uh, I think it was uh, back at the Misano test last year that they were trying. Um, basically um, some kind of communication in helmet communication with riders whereby race direction could communicate with like an earpiece they were working on that for um, for a full day um, with, with with different riders and trialing how they could use this kind of communication in the air so they're looking at ways to, to, to do this um, and then to try and maybe increase the uh, increase the spectacle as a television package, um, bring you new interactive ways in which um, maybe you can hear how teams communicate with riders. That's something that uh, maybe they're looking at for the future. And, uh, you know, the shoulder cam was something that was cool just because it was a, a completely different angle. Um, I think it would be really great to see it in a race, um, to see Alex Rins riding with a, you know, big group of, of 10 other bikes around him. That would be ridiculously spectacular and something cool to watch mid-race and then you know to pour over on youtube afterwards um but uh, yeah it's great i think it's something that uh, we will see more of and i hope to see more of yeah um, it's going to be absolutely fantastic for starts uh, i think like on board on board starts it's going to be fantastic but maybe later in the race uh, it'll be entertaining to watch from time to time but um it's going to be especially sort of the race and the battles where it's going to make uh, where it's going to be interesting and as you say, Dave, just to, it gives you an idea of the kind of physicality of it. I think I might have mentioned in one of the, the Paddock Note shows that we did over the weekend that um, some people might think that it's just about sitting on a bike and pulling the throttle and pulling on the brake. But this gives you an indication of just not the, the physicality of the movement that's involved uh, of, as you say, the elevation change and how much you're having to move your body over and around the bike, as well as the, the variety of different things you're having to operate with your left hand uh, while hanging on at around 200 k's per hour. Um, I thought it was fantastic for that. So, um, yeah, really interesting. Um, and uh, I think it's, uh, it's it's definitely a step in the right direction and hopefully something we might see more, more regularly in 2022. Guys, we're in back-to-back uh, -back Grand Prix events. So just as we wrap the Grand Prix of the Algarve uh, with our winners and losers, we'll look ahead to Valencia. Uh, and the final round, round 18 of 2021. Um, Neil, your uh, winner and loser from the weekend? Um, my winner, I'm going to say Juan Mir, because I thought he, he wrote a great weekend. Um, quite like the story of his weekend as well, how, um, how, how sort of personally he had been taking the... Uh, the rubbish races and the rubbish performances that he had had in the two Mizanos and in, in Austin. Um, you know, Mir was really off the boil, I think, in those three weekends. And it just looked like a season was going to, to basically um, implode. His title defense would end with a whimper. And it was all a bit, uh, a bit sad because it was only back in uh, Austria that we were saying, oh, yeah, this is, you know, Mir's coming. Um, but this showcased the fact that uh, Suzuki have made a few decent steps forward recently. A new chassis they brought to the Mizano test, also an evolution of the ride height, ride height device. Um, and uh, Mir took a, a week off, basically, after the second Mizano race just to completely recharge his batteries. And that, for him, is something quite major. He didn't even take a week off uh, when he won the championship last year. You know, he was back on a motocross bike, I think, two days after the, the final race of 2020. Um, so, uh, yeah, I thought Mir was was excellent. First front row start in MotoGP, first front row start since 2017, which is ridiculous. And, um, you know, Abelie chased Peko in the early laps, didn't really have anything for him in the end, but still a, a really good performance from Joanne. Yeah, I have to, um, I'm going to jump in as well because uh, I put Mir as my winner. Um, you know, we've, we've, no, we've, we've been critical, you know, of his, his world championship defense. I mean, that was only his sixth podium from 17 races. Uh, he's finished, you know, runner up twice. 
And, you know, I, I just like the way that he so eloquently described what the predicament was like, you know, being on a bike that wasn't quite up to scratch, wasn't quite competitive, and how he was dealing with the frustrations from it, like you, like you summed up, Neil. But I also have to say that Mir was my loser for the exact same reason, because, you know, I think he had a glimpse in Portugal of what his season could have been like, because uh, I think after 2020, when he became world champion, a lot of people were saying, uh, I, did he have the quality? Was he deserving? Uh, was he somebody that, you know, really merited being world champion in the year that Mark Marquez hurt himself? Um, and, you know, I think his, his, his quality is undoubted. So I think, you know, uh, it, it was a shame that it was a little bit too too little too late for the Suzuki rider. And I'm sure even though, you know, there was a lot of happiness in the Suzuki pit box on Sunday, um, you know, the, the hammer is still going to be, you know, coming down on the, on the technicians, both in Amatsu and also, you know, in the race workshop to try and get the bike even more competitive for next year. And let's not forget, you know, they are one of the few, in fact, one of two factories on the grid only with two bikes. So Suzuki, you're always going to be up it, up against it. What's your winner from the weekend, Dave? And your loser, in fact. Uh, well, my winner, um, I mean, really, I ought to pick Peko Banyait because Peko had such a fantastic, um, uh, had such a fantastic weekend. But I'm, I'm actually going to go with sort of Alex Marquez and probably all of the Hondas, but especially Alex Marquez. Alex Marquez came very, very close to uh, a podium, looked really strong, looked much more like the Alex Marquez that we saw at the second half of last year. Um, uh, and the Honda looked competitive again, like the second half of last year. It's, uh, because, you know, pole finished well. I mean, well, uh, Mark Marquez wasn't there, uh, obviously Stefan Bradle taking his place and Stefan clearly taking a little bit of time to get up to speed. It was only Takanakagami who was really, well, he was his usual self, which is, um, cracking under pressure, uh, being, he's showing speed when it doesn't matter and um, not showing speed when it does. Uh, so, yeah, my, I, I think my real winner for this weekend was um, uh, the, Alex Marquez and Honda because they have this new chassis which they're starting to get dialed in, which seems to be working. Um, uh, and they have this completely new bike coming for 2022, uh, I'll be at the Jerez test, so I hope to be able to get a close-up look at it and a better idea of it. Um, but yeah, it was it was much more of an optimistic. It wasn't just, you know, Mark Marquez doing something exceptional and winning a race. We had someone else doing well, and that's really, really important. And who was your loser, baby? My loser um, is going to be Darren Binder um, for obvious reasons. Um, he had so much criticism um, he's going straight to MotoGP. Lots of people saying he didn't deserve it. Um, he had an absolute sort of just a, an absolute tsunami of hate uh, poured out over him for taking out Dennis Fodger. Um, yeah, it was a stupid move, but it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't Loris Caparossi on Tetsuya Harada at Argentina 2000. Oh, sorry, 1998. Um, it wasn't a cynical uh, uh, attempt at, at taking someone out. It was a slightly overambitious uh, uh, overtake, which which failed. And um, yeah, I mean, he really, uh, he really, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, he just had a terrible. He just had a terrible weekend, basically. Uh, Neil, who was your poor soul from the Grand Prix? Uh, my poor soul is uh, Iker Lecuona, um, just because he had a great weekend. He was superb, um, especially on Saturday. He was really strong in FP4, looked good in qualifying, um, was comfortably ahead of the two factory KTM guys, Binder and, and Oliveira. Were were almost having to look across at uh, Tech Three. To, to understand what they were doing for Eker to be so strong. Um, but uh, yeah, I just felt the race was um, one of the one of those instances where he could just, when he, he had the potential to be really good up at the front, maybe not up at the front, but maybe in the battle for the top six or the top seven, um, there were just a lot of mistakes there. And I think that's characterized Eker's time in, in MotoGP. I know he's young, I know he's lacking experience, um, but I thought this was a really good opportunity for him to have a good race, but he made that mistake at turn one, ran off, 
and uh, made a few other mistakes before then taking down Miguel Oliveira, which is never a good thing to do, especially judging by Pit Barrer's expression uh, in the garage <laughs> just after it happened, uh, which looked as though the, the knives were absolutely being sharpened uh, for Eager upon his return. So, um, yeah, I thought, uh, you know, there was a lot of this, like, oh, Eager, why, why was he let go? They've made a silly mistake, but you've got guys like Remy Gardner and Ralph Fernandez doing what they're doing this year in Model 2. I, you know, I, I don't think it was such a crazy thing to move Iker on, if I'm being honest. Yeah, but I mean, if you had to choose between Darren Binder and Ika Lekwona, who would you choose? That's a different question, obviously. I'm saying KTM, I think, were justified in, in placing Remy and Raul there. I have to apologize, gentlemen, because I'm um, just in Italy uh, for the eve of the the last uh, MHGP, so the internet connection has been a bit shaky. So uh, if any listeners are getting some distorted uh, audio on this, then that's totally my fault. But we've got the Gran Premio uh, Moto de la Comunidad Valenciana closing the MotoGP season, and it's going to be a very special race, um, you know, a big occasion um lots of people probably traveling to the venue we're probably unlikely to have many spectator restrictions so it could be a full house um it's going to be a memorable occasion um yes i am talking about the final of esports uh we'll have a little bit of a talk over the um the favorites and the runners for the title at some point uh, I only I jest. It's uh, Valentino's last race. But my big question first is, um, Mark Marquez, do we, do we think we're going to see him back for the final round? Uh, there seems to be a lot of debate. Nobody really knows. First of all, are Honda and HRC potentially, you know, could they be kind of clearer with their communication over what's happening with the former world champion? Uh, yeah, they could be clearer. I mean, they could sort of, you know, try communicating. At the moment, all we know about it is um, from Simon Crafar interviewing Alberto Pooge in the pits. I have no idea. I don't think he will be at uh, Valencia because you would expect that if um, uh, if he was uh, going to be at Valencia, we would have had a press release saying that um, he's going to be at Valencia. Um, and there's no point. He's got nothing to gain from going to Valencia. Um, I, the, the lesson of 2020 was don't try to come back too early. Uh, and it's so much more important for him to be in Jerez on, what is it, the 18th and 19th, the, the Friday and the Thursday and Friday after, uh, after the final race. Uh, that I don't think we'll see him in Valencia. But, um, I mean, you know, this is one of my predictions. So obviously it's going to be wrong. <laughs> Yeah, and we're also quite unfortunate that this, this show is probably going to be dropping on Tuesday morning and by then the news might already be out whether uh, Mark will yeah, be exactly, yeah, Valencia Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, but it, it, it is a little bit, I mean, I'm not trying to insinuate anything by saying this, but it is a little bit like um, the end of the summer last year when there was just nothing coming out of uh, Honda, even you got the impression even uh, the, the majority of people within the Repsol Honda team didn't know exactly how Mark was. It was just his inner sanctum, basically, of Alex, his parents, Emilio Alzamora, maybe his physio. They, they, they were the ones, and his doctors, obviously, they were the ones that knew that what kind of state he was in, but the outside world had absolutely no idea what was going on. And uh, I would say the last week has felt a little bit like that. Maybe I'm just building this up a little bit. Um, but um, I, I find it slightly puzzling, um, I must say. Um, it's no great drama if he does sit out the last race, but just the the, 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 um, the mystery uh, around the whole thing, um, I think definitely leads some uh, people to you know, begin speculating about what might actually be happening or, or maybe possibilities of what could be happening. Yeah, I don't think you can blame Honda for it because, uh, as you say, Neil, they've got absolutely no idea. The only people who knows is, you know, Mark Marquez, Emilio Alzamora uh, and, and his brother Alex. And his brother Alex only just because he happens to live in the same house as him. Um, but they really are... Uh, it's a little world unto themselves and Honda are powerless to do anything about it because, I mean, they've got the best rider of all time uh, on the books and they're paying him 20 million um, uh, euros a year. And um, if they want to win races, um, he's the only one who can do it for them. So, yeah, I mean, he's, he wins races, he wins championships. So they, they can't tell him off. Um, he is going to do what he is going to do and they just have to deal with it. 
It'll been um, two years since Mark last raced at Valencia then. Uh, you know, he took the victory there in 2019. And it's actually quite a, what's the word, a fair track, you could say. I mean, four different winners, four different brands in the last four editions of the Grand Prix. Of course, we had a double header in 2020. Um, I've got a little bit of uh, Valencia trivia here for you, actually, guys. Um, the Ducati have only won three times since MotoGP have been to the Ricardo Tormo. Can anybody tell me the three riders? Stoner, Davizioso, and Bayless. Bayless, yeah. Oh, oh right, six. Yeah. That's going to be Emerson. Uh, it's going to be Emmett and Morrison sharing the points on that one. Um, <laughs> um, two riders have won for Yamaha. Uh, Valentino Rossi actually is, uh, you know, won there in 2004. Two riders have won for Yamaha uh, since that time. Those riders are? Lorenzo, Morbidelli. Good shout, Neil. And the very first rider to win in MotoGP or even the 500s at Valencia was another Yamaha. Can I at least finish my question before you just throw your odds? <laughs> this is supposed to be for the benefit of the listeners as well, you know. <laughs> you get, give the listeners a chance, Neil. Give the listeners a chance. Well, my last question of the podcast, guys, is what, what do we think of this track? I mean, for me, it's um, I think Valencia has always been more about the end of season spectacle. Um, it's like been a bit of a, a send off to the year. Uh, you know, traditionally, the paddock goes into town on the, on the Sunday. Um, you know, even when there's been a test, it's Monday's traditionally been off. So Sunday's been a time to grab some dinner and a couple of drinks before, you know, the, the following season's work begins again. Um, but as a track, it's not really up to much, is it? I mean, it has the fantastic circular atmosphere, of course, with the, with the grandstands, but there's, um, there's not really much more to it. Uh, like turn 13, what is it, turn 12, 13, that section is absolutely magnificent. It's absolutely fantastic and the rest is rubbish. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is quite a good atmosphere. It's a shame we go there in November when it's sort of freezing in the morning. At least it's sunny, so it's not so bad. Um, but yeah, it's uh, uh, and there's massive traffic jams on the way into the into the circuit, which also doesn't help. But um, yeah, it's um, also it's the last race. Like it's the last race of the season, and by by this time, everyone is just you know we've. We've done motorbike racing, thank you very much, and it's uh, time to have a little bit of time off. And even though we've only it's only been eighteen races this year, I mean, I can't imagine what it's going to be like next year when there's twenty. If we actually do have twenty-one races, um, yeah, by by Valencia, it'll be pretty much the people will be trying not to murder each other. Yeah, it's a crab track, but really good atmosphere. I would say, but on the plus side, no test this year, Dave, at Valencia, which uh, I would say is uh, is probably going to add uh, several years to both of our lives. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, but Wednesday night on Valencia, I mean, like seriously, I mean, you know, it, I was to, I would have strapped a nuclear device to my body and sort of gone in and blown the whole lot up on uh, by uh, by sort of Wednesday evening, especially the hanging around because the the debriefs at a test are the worst of all because it's sort of lots and lots of hanging around and will they, won't they, and it's at odd times and somebody somebody suddenly rushes in and says, uh, uh, oh yeah, Valentino's now or Mark won't be until sort of 9.30 or something like that. And it's just, it, you, yeah, you really do lose the will to live on a, uh, that, that the last day, Wednesday, after sort of five or five or six days on, um, actually, it's usually an entire week by by that time of, of debriefs and interviews and all the rest of it. You, it's, um, uh, you've had enough. I have a wonderful photo on my phone of, uh, I don't know, the last Valencia test that we did in 19. Everyone's gathered around Alex Marquez. And this is nothing against Alex Marquez. It's more just a situation thing. But uh, it's quite funny just because you you can basically see every single journalist in attendance trying to find the enthusiasm to even pay attention, <laughs> Dave included. Because... Except because the thing is, it is absolutely one of the most interesting, or it ha it's one of the most interesting tests. That and the Sepang test are two really interesting tests because there's so much happening there, and you're you're there with the least amount of enthusiasm imaginable. Just absolutely no desire to be there at all. You would rather, you know, everyone is just sitting there praying for the uh, uh, for the earth to open up and to swallow us down into the bowels of hell, um, which would be a distinct improvement. Uh, 
but um, the thing is, there's so much there. You know, like we we do all these interviews usually on the Monday with uh, with the various team managers and all the rest of it, uh, and they're they're usually quite interesting. But again, we've just had enough of it. So I'm all for this idea of moving to the Jerez test. Adam, could you tell your uh, lovely wife that works for Dorna to maybe uh, put that quote from David on the, the Valencia GP poster next time? The depths <laughs> of hell would be an improvement. <laughs> I was, I was just about to say, you know, we really love doing the Paddock Pass podcast. Um, you know, it's, we, we do quite enjoy it and we do quite like our jobs. So, um, you know, on this somewhat cheery note, perhaps we should bring, bring this latest show to a close. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with there is a I agree with Dave's sentiment. There is a degree of wanting, you know, Ricardo Tomo to vanish into some large chasm in the ground. Um, and like 21 races does scare me having been well standing right at the tail end of 12 consecutive weekends in a row but um hey come on guys it's valentino's last race we've got to be happy and we'll be back with a really shiny 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 podcast next week and we're going to have a full notes uh, program for all our patreon listeners over the weekend where we're going to be devoid of cynicism and we're going to be wearing yellow t-shirts but we have yellow expressions and um, we're going to be full on for that esports final, aren't we, Neil? <laughs> we'll be front row ad, absolutely. Controllers at the ready. Thanks ever so much to Rental Streets and also Fly Racing for backing this um, podcast of mirth. Uh, we'll be back with you next week or actually a little bit later this week with our follow up show. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.